You're listening to a Why Now podcast. This is Golden Nuggets podcast on whynow.co.uk. I'm your host, Al, and I'm a PE teacher of 15 years. This podcast is about interviewing key influencers in education and giving them a platform to deliver their story. I want to explore why and how they do what they do to better inform parents and pupils on their education journey. Okay, welcome back to the Golden Nuggets podcast, and today I've got Ben Brown with me. How are you, Ben? You okay? I am very well, thank you very much. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad that uh, back at school, so um, the kids are great to be back, and uh, I just, I think, yeah. to provide a bit more normality, so yeah. I'm guessing you've just been sort of all the way through there with, with your job and your role. I've been working throughout the whole lockdown, actually, um, and it's been quite a surreal experience, you know, travelling into the BBC, which is um, in Oxford Circus, so it's right in the heart of London, which was, you know, totally deserted, uh, like a film set for for the first few weeks of lockdown. So it was kind of weird going in um, and slightly nerve-wracking in the early days, Um but actually, the BBC took a lot of precautions. You know, there's only one person allowed in a lift, that kind of thing, one-way corridors. So, you know, it it was it was difficult, but actually, it was really rewarding because the audiences were enormous, um, especially during lockdown. Partly because, you know, so many people were at home, but because people were pretty gripped by the news, obviously, and every development was really important to a lot of people. So it felt like. It felt like it was a good time to be broadcasting in terms of, you know, what our role is, actually, and and people who really need us at that time. How does it compare to some of the milestones in your career? As coronavirus, um, you know what, it's quite strange because I've done a lot of crises, disasters around the world. Um, And when you have one in your home country and your home city, it's 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 quite weird. I was thinking that a few times, walking around the streets around Oxford Circus when it was completely empty and it's like a, a sort of an apocalyptic movie. And I have been in those sort of situations in other cities like New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And I remember just driving in there early after the devastation and all the freeways were completely empty and you could you could almost walk on a freeway because there was literally no cars. And so you see things like that in, in, in foreign places when you do foreign stories. But then to have all of that in your own city, is, it was just a very strange feeling. And um, I suppose we'll, we'll touch on some of those moments uh, in, a, in, a, in a bit longer. But the, um, the first part we, we're going to try and focus on is, you know, yourself in terms of growing up and your influences going through uh, education, really, and, and then taking you to, towards the BBC. Then we'll talk about the BBC afterwards. So let's just kick off with a, you know, for those the audience that don't know who you are, uh, which I'm sure is not very many, like I mentioned before, <laughs> um, with 18 million viewers this year, it must be, uh, you know, prime time being on the BBC. But um, you know, what is it, what is it like uh, at school for you, and and how was it family life and stuff? I, I went to um, a private school in Kent called Sutton Valance, which was which was good, good school. I mean, I never in those days I didn't really think I was going to be a journalist in particular. Although my dad was an ICN newsreader, um, and he he announced um, Kennedy's assassination, President Kennedy's assassination. So he was, you know, I knew the industry, um, and I was editor of the school magazine. So I suppose I was. Uh, 
Uh, maybe I did have inklings of being a journalist. Uh, and then I went to Oxford University. And even then, I didn't really think of doing journalism. Um, in fact, I think I wanted to be a barrister, probably, at that stage. But I didn't, I didn't really fancy studying law, because I thought that might be too much hard work. Um, and it was only my last year at uni, I kind of think, I, I was thinking, what could I do? And journalism, because of my dad, was what I knew. So then I started kind of quite rapidly uh, writing for the Oxford magazine, ISIS, and uh, and I applied to the BBC. They have a traineeship scheme, uh, which is very highly competitive, and it still is. And it's like, well, in, in those days, it was about 10 places and two or 3,000 applicants. Um, and I didn't get on that. Uh, and there were various other BBC schemes that I didn't get on, and I tried other trainee schemes, ICN, Daily Mirror, didn't, didn't get on any of them. Um, so what I did was to do a postgraduate journalism diploma at Cardiff, which was actually brilliant. It was a one-year course, and I highly recommend that kind of thing, actually, when we come to advice to people, because, you know, a postgraduate diploma, it's very vocational. It teaches you, uh, you know, TV editing, radio editing, all the technical stuff, but also how to write stories, the law of journalism, um, the law of libel, all that kind of thing, shorthand. So it was a very hands-on vocational course, and that then led me to my first job. So that was kind of my kind of route in. How, you studied um, politics, philosophy, and economics, right, at Oxford. Uh, I'm quite interested about the philosophy side of things. How did how do you think that helped you with your with your? Job? Um, it it didn't help me directly. It teaches you how to think. I found it incredibly difficult, actually, philosophy. Um, uh, but I think I think generally what education does is teaches you to think very clearly. And I still find myself now when I'm doing, you know, I am every day as a journalist and as a presenter, which is what I am most of the time now. So you are dealing with a mass of information every minute of every hour of every day. And, you know, say I've got an interview with, um, you know, the prime minister or the chancellor coming up and I'll, I'll get a brief from my producers, but I may only have a few minutes to read it. And it's about filleting out the key bits of information. And I think a good education teaches you that, how how to fill it out information that you need and sort of disregard the rest. That's one of the key things. Have you done any, have you done any of that with your children? Taught them that. No, I've, le- I've left that to the teachers at their schools, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's their job. Uh, no, I kind of... I, I, no, I think I teach them. I don't think I've taught them in that formal way. But I do think that's... That is one of the key things that you learn at school um, is how to take the key points out of a mass of information and, and prioritise them. And, and I, as a journalist, I kind of I, I absorb a lot really quickly, but then I kind of delete it all at the end of the day. So when it gets to the end of a busy day, I often can't remember even the stories I've done because I've had to mass delete my brain in order to absorb all the mass of information that's going to come into me the next day. And how do you prioritise those stories? Well, the stories that we run on any day, that's, uh, I mean, that's a big question. We have uh, lots of arguments in the newsroom or lots of discussions in the newsroom about what the priorities are on any given day. Um, And that's, you know, it depends, actually. Uh, You know, I'm on a 24-hour network, the BBC News Channel. So, we might lead in in any one particular hour on something that's just happened. So maybe um, a, a new country 
like Greece or whatever, has had quarantine restrictions imposed. And we might lead on it for that one hour. But it doesn't mean that at 10 o'clock, the, the main 10 o'clock news, which is a record of the whole day, that might be a different lead because that's the lead for the whole day. It's like the, the main story on the front page of a newspaper. But we we try to prioritise stories according, you know, it's, it's there are different balancing factors. There's obviously how important something is and how interesting something is. And you can't always go on what's interesting. Otherwise, you'd just be doing kind of showbiz gossip all the time. And, and that isn't really what is always news. News is important, but it's also what's interesting. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a difficult balance. There's not, uh, it's not an exact science. And what about when you first joined the BBC? Like, what sort of roles were you doing there? I mean, were you used to like the tea boy taking out on tea for everyone? Or <laughs> was that, did well, that, was that a job or did that exist? Or Well, when I, so I, after I left Cardiff and did my journalism course, I went into local radio in Glasgow, Liverpool, um, and then LBC and BBC Radio London in London. And then I got a job uh, a few years later at the BBC. Um, and I just was hired as a general, as a TV reporter, actually. Um, so I was straight in, in those days, the BBC was much smaller than it is now. And the newsroom was much smaller. And that was 1988, which is, um, an incredibly long time ago. I can't believe how long ago that is, but I was, I feel quite lucky because when I walked into that newsroom as a reporter, there were only a handful of reporters, not many foreign bureau, not many foreign correspondents. And 1989 was when, um, Eastern Europe started collapsing and the Iron Curtain communist Europe was collapsing then the Berlin Wall came down and I was sent as a 28-year-old reporter to cover uh, those huge stories around Europe um, very quickly after I joined. So I was really lucky um, to get a massive opportunity of doing, you know, some of the most sort of seismic stories in Europe in the last um, century. And and that and that then led me to be I was uh, made Moscow correspondent based in Moscow in 1991. So I was what 31 then, and I was in Moscow for a few years, and then I came back to London as a sort of foreign correspondent based in London, doing quite a lot of war reporting, Afghanistan, Iraq, former Yugoslavia, that kind of thing. I mean, if you're okay with it, could you expand slightly on some of you know the incidents? Because I know that. I mean, you won a, a, a part. Well, you were part of a team that won a BAFTA for the for the breakup of Yugoslavia. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Yes, that was coverage of the Kosovo. I mean, we did. Yugoslavia was there were a whole series of you know really brutal um, civil wars: Bosnia, Croatia, and Kosovo. Um, and they were they were some quite scary times. But then I also did. Um, well, after 9-11, there was the sort of uh, Afghanistan crisis and the Taliban um, and the sort of fight against the Taliban. And then the I, I did the first Gulf War um, after the invasion of Kuwait, when Saddam invaded Kuwait. And then the second Gulf War in 2003, when the British and Americans invaded um, and I was embedded with troops and went into Iraq. So... It was quite a wide canvas of sort of uh, wars in those in those years, and then also a lot of kind of natural disasters, um, like things like the tsunami that I covered as well. So at one stage, I was kind of 
it, it's called in the trade a, a fireman reporter, and it just means you know a, a big story happens, and it's like you 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 know you get a call from the newsroom, and they say, can you go and jump on a plane um, in a few hours or maybe even a few minutes? Um, it's so it's quite an intense lifestyle because you can never really predict what you're going to be doing from one day to the next, which is great in one way, but it it can get kind of exhausting you do a two-week trip somewhere and then you come back and you can be turned around almost the next day i mean you had um you wrote about your experiences in the battle for iraq and about in particular a british soldier as well apparently that saved your life uh by opening fire on on a on a, a iraqi militant so what i mean that must have been so scary mate like i mean like most people now in in, in the civilized developed world would have never been anywhere near, in the UK in particular, anywhere near a, a gunshot. I mean, if you have, you've been very unfortunate. Does that still happen now in frontline, you know, war journalism? Is that something that happens? Or? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's for reporters, it's how, it's the level of risk that you want to take. And actually, you know, in that situation that you're talking about, I was embedded with the British Army. That means that I was in their care. They were looking after me. I was with them. And in a way, that's the safest way to do it. If you go in as if you're in the middle of a war zone by yourself, sort of between the two sides, it's quite it can be quite lethally dangerous, actually, because you can, you know, you can get get caught in the crossfire. But what happened with that story that you're referring to is we, we were in Basra and it was just after the British had invaded Iraq and we were going round Basra with this unit of the Irish guards and and. Uh, there was a body on the street and they thought it was one of the Iraqi insurgents and he had a RPG weapon in his hand and he was lying in, on the ground and we were sort of walking around. I was ab about to record a piece to camera and then suddenly this supposedly dead Iraqi insurgent jumped up. He'd been pretending to be dead and he picked up his RPG and he was about to fire it at us and uh, there was a tank gunner, British tank gunner nearby who basically just saw this and blasted him and uh, and then I felt the reason I wrote about that was I had kind of I, rather conflicting emotions because I went up to the guy who had killed him because he had effectively saved our lives and shook his hand and shook this British gunner's hand for killing this Iraqi and I wondered you know because we are supposed to stay distant we're not supposed to be emotionally involved we're supposed to be you know, impartial observers. And it felt like I was, you know, part, I'd become too part of the story because these, this British soldier had, had shot this guy on my behalf or on our behalf. And then I was sort of shaking his hands and I was just so relieved to still be alive. Yeah, I mean, it sounds quite traumatic though at the same time in terms of, uh, you know, seeing someone actually, I suppose, die in front of your own eyes. I mean, uh, do you be, how, how do you deal with that? Um, I, I mean, I think there's two things that you have to... One, one is the danger, and I've, there have been a few, a few moments where I've really felt that my life was in serious risk, or frankly, where I thought I might die. Um, uh, I mean, and then there are times where you see horrific things, and, you know, you both are potentially quite traumatic. I mean, I don't think I've ever... I've, I've had bad dreams sometimes but I've never suffered I don't think post-traumatic stress um, but you know colleagues have um, and quite understandably they have um, 
you know, and, and often people who've seen worse things than me. Um, but for example, in, I was in Zimbabwe and we were, um, we were in a, it was a time about 20 years ago, actually, when uh, Mugabe's sort of militants were taking over white farms in Zimbabwe. And we went inside a white farm that was about to be attacked by these militants because we thought it would be good to film it from the inside as this attack happened. And this farmer had said, you can just get out the back as they come in. You can film and then get out the back. But the militants sort of came in to both entrances. So we were trapped for hours and they were these militants had knives and weapons and there was a large mob of them and um, and they were pretty angry. And, and we were thinking then they were going to possibly kill this white farmer, but also kill us. And we couldn't get out. And that was I remember thinking at that time, I'll either I'm either going to die here or I'm going to win an award <laughs> because it was it was such a good story. If you could get out and tell it, you know, if you could survive it and tell it and show it, you would probably get an award. And and that sometimes, and we did, we did get out just about, and we did get an award. We got a Royal Television Society Award. But I, I do remember very distinctly thinking, oh my God, I could die here. And, um, and when you've got kids and, you know, a family and a wife, um, it's not just your life to throw away. Um, and I had another time, one other time I really remember thinking that was in Chechnya, and again, there was a it was a sort of uprising of Chechen rebels, and the Russians were just pulverizing Grozny, which was the the main Chechen city, and bombing it from the air and shelling it. And we went into this presidential palace where the rebels were, and as we went in, these shells started pounding against the walls around us, and I could I I still can remember the bullets just whistling past my ear, and I was just you know, paralyzed and just thinking, oh my God, we're going to die here and running for the car. And I was, I actually remember saying, God, if you could get me out of this, I will never ever do anything stupid like this again. I'll never take a risk like this again, which is actually rubbish because of course I then did take more risks afterwards. But, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> and I sat on the floor of the car as I was being driven out of this shooting and shelling, um, just thinking, just get me out of here. Um, and again, I, fortunately I got out, but so those are the moments that are, and they live with you forever because they're the moments that you've pushed, pushed the envelope just a little bit too far. You know, you've taken a, a few too many risks. Um, and that, but there are other, you know, there are journalists who've taken much greater risks than I have in my time. I think re relatively I've been quite cautious. And actually, as you get older, I think you take fewer risks. Most of the bigger risks I took were when I was younger, uh, in my 20s and 30s, probably. And I suppose some of those stories you might have written about in Sand Stealers, another book you wrote as well, more, more recently as well. That, that's a... That's a sort of fictionalised version of my career. It's a novel, um, and it's about war. It's about a group of war correspondents. Because in the time I was doing it a lot in, uh, you know, uh, sort of nineteen nineties, early two thousands, it tended to be a group of, you know, there was a group of war correspondents who would go from one war to another, uh, like maybe from Bosnia or Kosovo to Iraq to Afghanistan to Somalia. And it was, I like the idea of this clutch of, you know, men and women who were all quite close, but rivals, quite jealous of each other, but maybe having affairs with each other. Um, 
sleeping with each other occasionally, doing things they probably shouldn't have done. And uh, so that was sort of, that was why I turned that into a novel, um, which I quite enjoyed writing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you think that's the uh, the next career after, after reporting? <laughs> well, a lot of reporters become novelists. I just felt like, you know, a lot of people had said to me, have you written your memoirs? And I didn't really ever want to write particularly memoirs because um, there's a lot of journalistic memoirs out there. But I thought it'd be more a bit different to write it as a sort of as a fictionalized account you know a novel rather than um a, a autobiography i suppose it's i suppose it brings me on to um sort of the the how journalism has evolved in in, in your opinion over the years because obviously you know social media now twitter instagram you know the younger generation are obviously engaging in different ways what what's your take on 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 social media and its impact i mean you know on one level social media is brilliant isn't it and the internet in general is brilliant and it's it's a sort of revolution from when i was young um and there wasn't anything like that and there was just there were the newspapers and the tv news bulletins and radio news bulletins and that was kind of it and it's almost like there's so much information now. I sometimes think there's sort of information overload. It's like a blizzard of information. Um, and it's a question, I think, I think the only thing I would say is it's about how you, going back to how you prioritise stories. And that's, I think, one of the things that we, in the old, you know, the traditional BBC news can do. Um, for example, if you watch the six or the 10 o'clock news is we can try and make sense of the day and try and tell you the key stories of the day as we see them in order of importance, what you were talking about earlier, how do you rank stories? And and to tell people, okay, the Chancellor's making an announcement today about tax cuts. We think that's the most important thing today. Now, you could have been on social media all day. You could have been on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. And... You know, you might have seen a few people arguing for or against the tax cuts or whatever, but you might not, or you might have not seen anything at all about the tax cuts. But I think in the end, it's good to have a kind of record of the day. And, you know, somebody like BBC or Sky or ITN or whoever else is doing it, trying to, you know, just makes a bit of sense of the day. Because I think Social media often doesn't make it doesn't really try to make sense of the day. It's it's a lot of people um, giving their opinions. Uh, it's a lot of people having arguments, but it isn't necessarily people really trying to inform you and then to explain things to you and to give you the the, the stories of the day in a kind of in in a kind of list of priorities. I must admit, like the art of debate seems to have been lost somewhat, um, mainly. I've only experienced it with some of the younger children that um, not necessarily at the school I teach at, but just generally with, uh, you know, having two young kids and, and conversations and hearing what children talk about is, is very much uh, things like to be bite-sized. It's, you know, yeah. things like to be 10 seconds long, mm. you know, and, and they don't really want to have the full picture. Um, you know, the tolerances maybe. No. And I, I don't know whether that's because of the instant gratification or, or what, but, um, what would be interesting more is, is is how to engage the younger generation with a, a more balanced uh, mm. approach towards debating stories to try mm. and create the full picture um, to, to, to best inform them. So 
Um, I don't know where I'm going with this point, by the way. <laughs> no, well, I think no, I think that both those things you say are true. So that in terms of it's all bite size, I think that is a real danger of social media, and it's quite addictive. I mean, by the way, I I feel quite addicted. I'm quite addicted to Facebook and Twitter because you just scroll through and you you know drop in and out, and it's not that demanding. It's and actually, I re- I think I read fewer books now. I mean, when I was 13, 14, I was reading sort of, and it sounds very precocious, but I was reading sort of Charles Dickens and Thomas Hardy novels uh, because I, I had nothing else to do. I was brought up in the countryside, I, uh, you know, and I would just read long novels and read newspapers. Now you just go on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or, and that can entertain you for hours. Um, so that's one thing. But also, as you say about arguments, I think the the trouble with something like Twitter is it's a lot of people, you know, making their arguments, um, but not necessarily having a balanced argument. Often people like to, you know, say something and it's in a kind of echo chamber, it's their opinions, and then other people come up and support them and that's kind of enough for them. Whereas, uh, yeah, I I think possibly the art of reasoned argument is not always what it should be nowadays. I mean, I, I do... I, I worry there's a lot of anger, especially on Twitter, actually. For example, if I do, you know, if I do an interview um, with a politician or something, I will often get criticised for not being challenging enough or being or being too challenging. So you get it from both ways and you suddenly you just get this hail of sort of stuff against you from both sides. And, and, and that's... That's one of the things at the BBC that we have kind of got used to, um, people kind of having a go at us from both sides. And in some ways that makes you feel like you're doing your job, but at the same time I do feel there's, there is a, a lot of, you know, for all its benefits, I think there's quite a lot of anger out there sometimes on social media. I mean, how much does that actually impact you? Um, I think it can. It can, you know. Um, I You know, you try and take it with a pinch of salt, obviously, uh, when... People have a go at you, but and it, and to be honest, it can be good audience reaction. Um, you know, if you do an int- if you haven't if you've done something not that well, you'll hear about it pretty quickly um, from from your viewers. Whereas in the past, in the old days, you might never have known what the viewers thought. But now, especially if there's a if something goes wrong in the studio, I mean, the viewers they love that and they will they will retweet it within seconds. I mean, I was on in the studio and the big glass lens of the camera for some reason just fell out of the camera and these are auto- automatic robot cameras and it just shattered it was a, like a big plane of glass and it sounded horrific and um, I was in the middle of an interview I think I was doing a newspaper review and it just shattered and of course straight away within seconds everyone had got the clip of this pane of this this lens shattering and put it on social media and it was out there um so yeah anything that goes wrong um and then there's occasional things when the camera is not in the right place and they it's just an empty chair and then i sit in the empty chair they the viewers will be retweeting that again within within a minute do you get much positive feedback as well though yeah no i do i mean i get Lots of very nice messages from viewers who say, you know, you're looking good today, Ben. Love your tie. Love your... Uh, <laughs> I actually see some of it. I've been on Gogglebox about four or five times. And I don't know why. They see, they seem to like BBC News on Gogglebox. So yeah. that's another way where you get sort of viewer reaction. And they're usually... Um, 
No, they're usually quite complimentary. They were having a go at me for my hair being too long during lockdown and saying that it needed to be cut and where would I get a haircut? <laughs> but I think, you know, I think if you're at the BBC, you you know, you welcome uh, reaction from viewers. Um, definitely. Um, I suppose I'm going to sort of go on to now uh, a few challenging questions that I've asked some uh, millennials to, to come up with and mm. uh, it'd be interesting to get your take on it. So um, one of them's put, what's your opinion on fake news? Well, I think fake news is, uh, there's always... By the way, there's always been fake news of one kind or another. I mean, propaganda, you know, all regimes throughout history have used fake news back to the Romans and probably before. So it's not as if it's something new. I mean, fake news is is a new term. Um, and also because of the social media explosion, fake, it's easier to fake news in some ways. It's easier for anyone to fake news. And I think it just means that for, you know... People like us in the traditional news industry, whether it's newspapers or um, or the BBC or ITN or Sky or whoever, um, it's it's really important. It makes our role even more important, and we have to be honest and and quite direct, and we have to counter fake news. I mean, we have a unit at the BBC now called Reality Check, and the idea of that is to is to directly counter fake news. So if something is put out um that's wrong we'll just say you know that is not an accurate statement so a politician might say something and make a claim uh and we'll just say actually sorry that's not true mm. yeah i mean it's like you said there's so much of it out now isn't there especially on social media it could be uh it could be quite dangerous for um some of the you know younger population that might spend the time listening on instagram and twitter and i suppose it's nice to uh to try and you know, like you said, provide that balance and a bit more informed information. But I suppose uh, what and a really good one. Next one here is um, who would you have liked to have interviewed? Anyone in the past? Well, as a Liverpool supporter, I would. Uh, as a, sorry, Liverpool fanatic. I would say Steven Gerrard and Jurgen Klopp for one thing, <laughs> but that's probably not what you mean. I mean, I'm actually quite lucky. I think I've interviewed. Loads of pretty interesting and important people down the years. Um, Bill Clinton, Mikhail Gorbachev, um, some amazing people. So I wouldn't want to be greedy and say, I'd, you know, I think it would have been nice to interview. I mean, I, I I talked to people like Margaret Thatcher, but I never did sat down and did an interview with her. Though some of those big figures from history, I would... Um, there's, there's a bit of a difference. If you're in news, you tend to... Um, you... you, you you might do an interview where you talk to somebody, you know, if you're if you're making a report, so if you go and interview Tony Blair or something, you might just ask two or three questions. There's a difference between that and, you know, Jeremy Paxman or Andrew Neil doing a sit-down half an hour interview, um, which which I have never I mean, I'd like to have done that because I'm I like to get into a quite a combative discussion sometimes. Um, but, you know, in the studio now I'd maybe do a four or five minute interview. But uh, no, I, I don't think there's any one particular person that I would say that I regret not having interviewed. You, you must have met Klopp, surely. I mean, he must have been. No. Never met Klopp. Know. No. Can you make it happen for me? I don't know. I'll try. I don't think he really knows who <laughs> I am. But <laughs> I don't mind. He'd be I fascinating, don't... though, wouldn't he? I, I yeah, mean... I think he's a great talker, and he's everything he says is quite interesting, whether it's about football or, or non-football, actually. he's He's got a lot. He's a very bright guy. Um, I think there's other... People in football, I'd love to talk to, you know, Jose Mourinho and 
I think some interesting characters out there, actually. Uh, I get bored of just talking to, you know, politicians and so on. I mean, they're, you know, they have a kind of message they want to get across. Um, whereas, you know, speaking to people from other spheres, I, I'd love to. And I suppose, actually, this it brings into this next one about how do you get an authentic answer out of a politician? Well, that's really dependent on the politician. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, they come on to programmes and they've got a message they want to get across, which is fair enough. Um, when it gets difficult is, or inauthentic, if you like, is when they just keep repeating the same thing again and again that they've come they've come on to say. And you ask them a challenging question or you take them down a different road and they just don't want to go there and they just keep repeating themselves. Um, so that is, that's tricky. And I always try, I always try and let them answer fully. Uh, but then if they're really sticking and, and repeating themselves, I think that's the time you have to, and I know viewers and listeners don't like it when we interrupt, uh, but I always try and stay polite, but you do have to interrupt because you've only got maybe four or five minute interview and you know otherwise they, they you know, they'll they'll just they can sometimes just keep repeating themselves um until they're blue in the face so uh it, it's i would say you know um different politicians uh have different styles actually um and and some are maybe more uh agile and and you know able and willing to answer whatever you ask them. I think like, you know, for a lot of normal people, I think it's the transparency and and sort of actions and behaviours. And I, 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 I'm not talking about anyone specific here. I'm just talking generally about mm. when you watch this as an average person, I'm thinking, OK, who am I going to vote for next? And mm. based upon the, 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 you know, the prime minister at the time or the opposition leader, I sort of sit there thinking, even their representatives in their cabinet, I'm like, I just don't know who I can trust. Mm. And I'm, you know, a reasonably intelligent guy. I'm not top of the tree, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of fairly well read. But I, I still am very um, sort of discombobulated by it all, really. I, I still just don't know exactly who will properly form a government that will honour everything that they've said, which mm. might, might sound slightly naive and it might mm. seem slightly unrealistic. But... Um, you know, people have longer memories than they probably uh, do themselves justice for. So it's um, it's a difficult one. I mean, we could. It probably... is, but you say that, but actually, in a way, we see more of our politicians now as a as a democracy than you know. If you think a hundred years ago, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have seen your politicians, your political leaders, hardly at all. You wouldn't have known maybe even what they looked like. You wouldn't have heard them speak very much. Now they're on they're on every day. They're doing interviews endless interviews um you know people like matt hancock at the moment you he's probably on you know several times almost every day um so i think i think the electorate and the voters and the people have you know you can make up your mind whether you like politicians or not but you but you're seeing a lot of them and hearing a lot of them and that's probably a good thing i mean i suppose there is there is the the element of the um engagement through how many people actually turned out at uh, the Brexit poll, for example. But it sort of brings me on to that exact point of, you know, do for engagement, for the younger generation especially, do you have to sensationalise the media or have a controversial opinion to get engagement? In terms of news, um, 
or generally? I think I think it's just the fact that you know what, what I mean. I don't know what the turnout poll was for the last general election, but mm. for the for the Brexit poll, it was fairly significant, and that's mm. maybe because Brexit will will have an impact on society. Mm. Um, but mm. it's also probably more of a once in a lifetime decision mm. that we have to make, and so obviously people are quite engaged in it, and also the media have bombarded us with the Brexit. Now, obviously, we've not had Brexit. We've had, you know, coronavirus now. So everyone's mm. very aware of coronavirus. But, you know, in terms of if we're talking about, you know, engagement levels, um, you know, does the it, does it have to be sensationalised or does there have to be controversy or arguments no, for people I, to get I engagement? Would, I don't get... No, because I, I, I think often argument for the sake of it actually puts people off, you know. Um, and sometimes the House of Commons Prime Minister's questions... I think that can put people off when it's just lots of shouting and automatic kind of going against what somebody else has said. Um, I mean, I think when you say sensationalised, I would say, you know, that it, it, we call it storytelling. And I think it's really important in TV journalism and newspaper journalism to tell the story in a really you know, interesting and engaging way. And there are ways to do that. Um, visually and so on but also the language you use to make it really simple I mean I hate it when we use kind of obscure acronyms like uh, and people and you know, we're assuming knowledge so if you say like the UNHCR for the United Nations uh, High Commissioner of Refu- High Commissioner of Refugees um, often you know people won't ne- necessarily know what that means so we have you know it's important to explain and not take for granted so and to use simple words um, and and to write in clear simple sentences, because in terms of broadcast journalism, and this is one of the things I was taught way back at Cardiff, you know, with a newspaper, if you're looking at a a story, you can read it again if you don't understand it the first time. If you're listening or watching a TV news bulletin, it goes past you once, and you've got to understand it. So you you know it has to be. In a in clear simple sentences, no, no you know subsidiary clauses and you know winding sentences that meander. So I I don't think it's sensationalizing. I think it's um, it's in writing and and storytelling that's engaging and absorbing and quite simple and uh, and can get through to everyone. I mean we have you know our audience um, for BBC News. Is is people who read the Financial Times, people who read the Guardian, people who read the Times and Telegraph, people who read the Mirror, the Mail, the Sun, the Daily Star. It's everybody. So you have to write news in a way that everybody um, will find engaging and and informative and accessible. And that is a really that's quite hard sometimes. It's not it's not always easy. But it's important. And when you come to young people, I mean, I think. One of the issues is people say not enough young people watch news or listen to news. I mean, you have to think a lot of quite a lot of news is about stuff that happens as you get older. So, you know, news about pensions. I mean, when I was 16, I wasn't interested in stories about pensions. And when I was 16, I wasn't really interested in stories about income tax um, because they don't, you know, they don't affect you. So I think there's an element where younger people sometimes are not always interested in all news anyway um and we have to have a balance that's you know every news bulletin has to have i think a balance of news that affects everybody so you know there should be news that is important to young people 
and use it affects other older people as well. How do you think the BBC will look in five years? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, obviously, there's a debate about the license fee. There's a debate about uh, lots of stuff about the BBC. But what I would say um, is that I'm incredibly proud to work for the BBC. I love. I mean, I really do love the BBC. I think it's a bit like the National Health Service. I think people it it's a great british institution it's got faults nobody would deny it's got faults just like the nhs has got lots of faults as well but i think they they they're both part of what makes britain a great country actually and um quite unique and you know obviously there's a great historical legacy of the bbc which makes me proud to work for it that it's you know it's it's been a beacon of kind of Good journalism for for many decades through the Second World War and broadcasting to people in Eastern Europe and so on. So uh, I think it's a great institution, and um, uh, I hope it lasts, you know, in whatever form for for a very long time. Well, I always still have it on the app. <laughs> I, mean, I, do, I do actually <laughs> well, look at. I prefer it than New Stories app actually. Right. Well, does. that is one of the challenges, obviously, because, you know, it has to keep evolving and with the technology. And that's what we've, we've tried to do with the iPlayer and BBC Sounds and online. When I first walked into the BBC, as I said, 1988, news online, BBC online was just beginning. Um, and people then were saying, oh, what's all, why are we doing all this online stuff? You know, I mean... It's a no-brainer now, obviously, but so you've got to keep adapting, you've got to keep thinking about the future, and it's moving, you know, the media with digital and everything is moving so, so fast, it's very hard to keep up, um, but, you know, you have to do it, you have to keep adapting and have to keep staying relevant, and, and we do, you know, I think we think about that all the time, maybe not always get it right, but we're always trying to do that. You know, when you come to retirement age, will you think, actually... You can still continue doing little bits and bobs and do a podcast, maybe, or yeah. You know, uh, well, I don't. I don't. I mean, my retirement's about fifty years away, as you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> don't Mate, that that hair is looking <laughs> absolutely on point. By the way, I mean. Those viewers that are telling you that had long hair, you know, you've got to get it trimmed, mate. Your long hair is looking very nice, mate. It's the new fashion anyway, so. <laughs> no, I don't. I love working, actually. And um, uh, I feel, you know, I'm, feeling, I'm doing my job well. I, but I would ultimately, um, yeah, when I leave the BBC, I'd like to, actually, I'd like to do teaching. I'd like to teach journalism. Um, I, I've always, I've done bits where I've gone back to, Cardiff and other journalism colleges and and talk to students and I really enjoy talking to young people and helping young people so I would like to definitely do that I mean it's a tough time to be trying to get into journalism uh well it's a tough time in in all walks of life at the moment obviously but uh you know generally if you're determined and persistent enough you know you'll make it I mean there's there's obviously lots of uh, avenues for younger people as well don't there I mean obviously we haven't really approached the uh, Instagram influencers thing yet but um I, I mean I was you know Instagram it's it's pretty bonkers like I looked at like the rock today and he's got 196 million followers and if you think like how much time people are actually spending on Instagram watching certain unfollowing certain people, it's mm. mm. a huge amount of exposure. And if that's the information that they're getting, mm. is there something to say that, you know, maybe, I mean, I haven't seen it, maybe they've got it, but is there an Instagram page for the BBC where they, they do sort of live stories on there or? 
Is there an Instagram um, live? I don't pass. even know. I I don't know. You've got you've got me there. <laughs> there possibly is, but I, I should know, but I don't know. <laughs> no, no. But I'm going to research that later on, actually, because I just thought about that. <laughs> I'll I'll check with our press office and get back to you. Um, no, I mean I think it's uh, I think it's like I said earlier. I think it's amazing, but also quite scary. Um, the power of certain people on social media. Yeah, I mean a hundred and. 90 million. I mean, that's almost as many as I've got. So, <laughs> that's, that's going. Um, and just one sort of last question before we wrap things up. Um, does the news you present consistently challenge your own thoughts and feelings on certain subjects? Um, and if so, how do you deal with that? That was the last one. Um, well, in terms of, I think, you know, in terms of what I think about stuff, um, obviously, you know, if you're reasonably well read you know and you're reading the papers every day and you're immersed in news you've got opinions about everything whether it's about a footballer or a pop star or the latest political debate but the important thing with us at the BBC and which is why I would never tweet anything remotely political the only thing is I really tweet her about Liverpool where I'm I am by I, I am biased and I'm not impartial um, but about when it comes to politics, I wouldn't because we are always told, and this is a really important thing, your opinions, you put them in a sort of bag and you leave it at the door when you walk into the BBC. So our opinions, whatever we think, um, you know, or however they're shaped, you, you leave them at the door. But I mean, when it, I have felt when I've done foreign stories in particular, I have felt really angry sometimes you know, seeing refugees. I remember seeing, uh, uh, like, a, at the time my kids were very young, seeing um, a little boy who was about four carrying uh, his little sister, who was about two, on his shoulders and walking for miles as part of a column of refugees and thinking, that's that's like my son and my daughter, and uh, that's just not right, you know, and, 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 and just putting my kids into that place and, and feeling really angry, but also then at that time feeling quite satisfied because our reports were going, and that was that was after Rwanda actually, and our reports were being seen, we were told, in, in Washington and in the White House and and there was some intervention that followed. So, you know, what is good is that often TV can be an incredibly powerful weapon um just showing pictures and showing a reality and that's why i've always thought foreign news is incredibly important in particular because you can expose things that the rest of the world sometimes has never seen and, and you can make a difference just by showing it because political leaders will then act when when everyone's seeing it on their tv screens it's really potent well then um, we're going to try and wrap it up there now because um yeah we're sort of towards the end. So if you were going to give some advice, some sort of few golden nuggets to anyone that wanted to get into reporting or journalism, mm. what would you suggest? Well first of all be really sure you want to do that. I mean I you know I have come across a few people who say kind of I'd like to be famous or I'd like to be on TV. Um and it's yeah, that's not really what it's about. If you want to be a journalist um, you've got to. I think you've got to love news. You've, I mean, like I said, I used to, when I was a slightly sad little boy, I used to listen to the Today program at the age of thirteen and read the Times. Um, so I'm not saying you have to do that, but I think you have got to really be quite want to be immersed in news. Um, you know, if you want to be a, a on-air reporter or presenter like me, I think you need to be a bit of a broadcaster, um, a, bit, a bit of a performer. 
you know you've got to be, have a bit of an ego a bit like an actor or um you know you've got to want to perform because kind of that's that's part of it as well and to get into it i would say you've got to be really persistent and you know a lot of good story getting and good reporting is about persistence it's about not taking no for an answer when you ask questions and so when you're going for a job you know you've got to knock on doors and not take no for an answer in the same way and people will respect that i think um in the industry um it's and like i said earlier it is it's not a great time at the moment um but there are you know, there'll always be there'll always be news and there'll always be a media because you know there has to be um so whether it evolves you know newspapers may be in decline and websites and digital maybe you know increasing and and getting bigger and better but there'll always be news in what for whatever form so um you know it, it's a great industry and and as i said earlier i think a, a really good way in is to do a postgraduate course but if you don't want to do that you can just you can freelance you can do stuff yourself um and and offer it to papers and websites you can go and set yourself up abroad you can go and be a local stringer in you know an, an african country or south american country and do stories for everybody um i know lots of journalists who's, who started like that and, and actually been quite successful so there are lots of different ways in you don't always have to go for a sort of you know a golden traineeship at the bbc or or itn which is very competitive and then if you don't get it you feel kind of distraught mm. well mate thanks so much for uh coming on the show and it's so it's lovely to see you again pal and um yeah, uh, thanks so much for all your advice, and it's been fascinating hearing. I'm sure we could talk all day about it. <laughs> well, we will talk for a few more hours, and I don't know about all day. But no, great to talk to you. Real pleasure. And, um, yeah, good luck. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show, pal. All right, pleasure. See you.